Well, this morning we're going to come to an interesting new book. It's a book of 1 Timothy, and it's a book which many of us probably have not touched before, given that it's a book written to pastors, yet it's a book that is relevant to us, and we will see shortly why. Uh, we just finished 1 Corinthians, and now we're in 1 Timothy, and so if you will turn to 1 Timothy with me, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 through 2 is our passage this morning, and we're simply going to read through two verses, as these two verses have much to teach us and to guide us in. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, and it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of a God and our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's going to stop right there. It's bow in the word of prayer. Our Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for worship. We're grateful to call you our God. We're grateful that we get to claim Jesus is our all in all because you are, because you came and saved us from our sins, and now we're gathered together as a family of God. Lord, we are grateful to gather because in this gathering, we know that your spirit is among us, working in us, guiding us, forming us, as well as being the representative for us to showcase your glory to all the people who come to our church to seek to find you. We are used by you, Lord, to bring others to you. We're thankful that our presence in Christ carries that effect. So, Lord, as we are coming together now to worship you through the listening of your word, as your spirit is working in us, we pray that we will grow, we'll be more attentive to how we should live our lives for you, all for your glory, we know, Lord. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. My child is an honor student at so-and-so middle school. This is a bumper sticker that was oftentimes seen in the 90s. I don't know if it is there today, and probably is. I don't travel through middle schools anymore, but I grew up in the middle school um, in the Bay Area. I was... Uh, uh, well, actually, I came from Taiwan, and I went to elementary school uh, through fifth grade, and after that, I went to middle school, and it was in the Bay Area. It was uh, in a suburban community, and our middle school is an honor student at Central Middle School. I don't know if you see that. I don't know if you have put that in the back of your bumper sticker for your child. I personally never got one, so I'm not too, uh, too sad about it. I wasn't sure how I would feel if I do have one uh, in the back of my parents' car, but... I do realize that after 30 years now thinking about uh, this, uh, um, just this consideration of the very fact that parents put this on the back of their cars, is that parents do this because they feel a strong sense of appreciation, a strong sense of pride for what their child had accomplished. And I think that's a healthy pride. I think that's a healthy appreciation is to demonstrate that the parent is pleased with the child for what the child had accomplished. Think that's wonderful. I also think that that is how God used to think about us in the very beginning. In the very beginning, God saw us in his own reflection. Now, we were not referred to as his children until the New Testament, but we were created as the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we see God saying, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We're made to be in God's image. We're made to represent God. We're made to do the work for God and to represent Him in such a way that is glorious and that is purposeful. And God was pleased with us. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we see that God saw us and He said, Behold, we were very good. As to all of the creation, but specifically the creation of man, it was very good. We were good. But that sort of pleasing before the Lord, that sort of appreciation by God of us did not last long, right? As far as Scripture has told us. Otherwise, all of the Scripture wouldn't have been written. The rest of the Scripture, as it's written, has been written to demonstrate to us that God is a Savior God. And the reason why God is the Savior God is because we're the ones who need a saving. See, in the very beginning, we sin against God. God told us not to eat a particular fruit of a particular tree. Now, eating that fruit of the tree, you might think it's not a big deal, but the heart behind it is what is truly devious. Because Satan said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, if you eat of that fruit, you shall be like God. That is why Adam and Eve did it. They want to be God. They want to be like God. They want to be the ones to determine their own destiny. They want to be the ones to determine their own path. They don't want God over them. And this is the hard attitude which we have in our hearts today. If you go share the gospel with anyone in your neighborhood or anyone on the streets, they don't want to hear anything about God. It's because it's not the fact that they have something against God, but at the moment they recognize a true God in their lives that has authority over them, that means that they must give up their own authority over their own lives. And that is simply unacceptable to many. But this is a command of God. And when we violate that command, the world is not better, but the world is indeed worse. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witnesses, and slander. These are the heart attitudes which are in the heart of man as they have walked away from God. And as these heart attitudes are displayed in our actions, we destroy ourselves. We also destroy relationships around us. And ultimately, we have to stand before God in judgment because God is the holy and the righteous God, and He cannot tolerate sin in His presence. However, as we also read in much of Scripture, it's that God is a loving God. As great is our sin, greater is His love. That's the message of Scripture. Sin is serious, but His love is even greater than that, and this is demonstrated through the Son, Jesus who came to earth and lived a perfect life. His perfect life was lived as a matter of salvation for us. You see, we need a perfect life in order to appear before God, and obviously we don't have it, but through Christ we get to have that. That perfect life is given to us as gift of righteousness, as gift for us if we believe that He died on the cross. As He died on the cross, He was paying for the punishment which we deserve for our sins. Every sin deserves punishment of God, punishment from God. But Jesus took that punishment for us. And then he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to show us that if we believe unto him, we will inherit that resurrection. We will also defeat sin and defeat death as he defeated sin and defeated death. This is the power of Christ in us that is displayed through his resurrection. If you today believe in the gospel, you are a child of God. You've been saved. 
into the kingdom of God. You once was an enemy. As God said in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we were enemies of God. But then through Christ, we're brought together into the household of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, we see this said, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. We now belong to a family, a family with God. And if we're corporately together, then we're also family with each other. This is the beauty of the gospel. Not only are we saved into the presence of God, we're also saved into the presence of one another as we're seeking to follow God together as a family. And this is really what 1 Timothy is all about. 1 Timothy is about Timothy in the sense that it's written to Timothy, but really it's about the church. It's about how the church should function as a family of God. God is given to Timothy. Paul is given to Timothy specific instructions regarding church structure, regarding godly men leading the church, godly women who are deaconesses and godly men who are deacons and variety of different administrative callings for men and women in the church. It's how the family of God should function and Certainly, this book is relevant to us. However, here in this book, in the first two verses, we're going to just look at two major principles, which is that we ought to encourage one another in the family of God. We're not to be separate from one another as if we're just living our own lives and just caring about our own stuff and our own ambitions, but rather as we're saved into the family of God, there is a calling for us to stick together, to care for one another, and to consider one another as even closer than we would to our biological families if they're not believers. Because there's a spiritual bond in us. Therefore, there are two encouragements Paul has given to us. Two encouragements. In fact, this is how we should encourage one another in the Lord. First is this. We need to invest in one another spiritually. We're called by God to invest in one another spiritually. We see this in verse 1 through 2. Let's read this again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, as you read this passage, you must give a little introduction to 1 Timothy. You know, Paul has written many letters in the New Testament. He's written 13 letters in which are titled, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus our Lord, which we know for sure he had written because he put his name in the front of the letter. So these are the letters of Paul. Is written 13 of them. Most of the letters he's written to are written to churches. Church of Philippi, Church of Corinth, the Church of Thessalonica, different churches, Church of um, Colossae. You have these churches that he's writing to. However, of the 13 letters, there are four letters, as we read in Scripture, that are written to people, to people, to individuals, actually. It's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Four letters which are written to individuals and nine letters were written to churches. And of the four letters are written to individuals, three of them are written to pastors. That is Timothy and Titus. So first and second Timothy and Titus. Philemon wasn't a pastor, just a friend. And as you read this letter and you're wondering, well, okay, so this is what we call a pastoral epistle. And what's the point of me reading this letter? And what's the point of us together as a church studying this letter? I mean, obviously, there are only two pastors here in our congregation, Pastor Dakota and myself, so why don't we just read this letter ourselves and try to learn as much as we can from this letter and apply it to ourselves, and that's about it. Why bring it to the congregation? Why study it as part of God's Word for everyone? Well, it turns out that all of Scripture has a reason to be there. 
Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all the scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All the scripture is important for us. All the scripture has something to teach us, including this book, 1 Timothy. In fact, this, this book has much to teach us in church structure, how we should structure the church organizationally. There is a structure of elders. There's a structure of deacons. How we should administer these structures. We should put godly men as elders of the church and godly men and women as deacons of the church. How we should do other administrative portions of the church. There's a provision to the widows, provision to the young women, how we should encourage the women to act and the men to act, the young men to act within the church. There are a variety of different church issues which Paul is instructing the church in, but he's instructing them through Timothy, and Timothy needed to know this. If Timothy leads the congregation well, then certainly the congregation can actually appreciate Timothy for what he's doing. It would be hard-pressed, it would be a difficult thing for pastors as he is following what this passage is saying and saying this is what we should go, but the congregation doesn't understand or the congregation hasn't studied this, so they don't appreciate the pastor, and so therefore have not picked out the right pastor or is not following the pastor in the right ways. And so Paul is giving instruction to Timothy, but obviously this whole book is profitable for the entire church because we all need to recognize godly leaders and appreciate them for what they do as well as ourselves supporting that because that's what God's will is in our lives. So that is the introduction to 1 Timothy, but as according to all of Paul's letters, what we see in the starting of this book is the word Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, this is how Paul starts his letter, and Paul is the writer of this book, and Paul is someone who you and I are familiar with because we really study him in 1 Corinthians, as well as Dakota has been preaching about him in the book of Acts, so we know who Paul is. But we do have to understand a little bit of his role here as the start of our passage here, as the start of a book here, in discussing his role as an apostle, just to be complete. His role as apostle is one which he is called by God to be sent out by God to do the missionary work of God. That's what the word apostle means. You are the one who is sent out by God. Sent out by God to do what? Well, Paul's call actually was very, very specific. We see his calling in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, in which God said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul's to do this work. His specific work is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles as well as to the children of Israel and to see the two people groups who actually don't like each other and perhaps even hated each other to come alongside each other under the same roof in an entity called the church. That's Paul's calling. Paul is to unite Jews and Gentiles under church, under Christ. Now, as we know, when Paul does this, he's not doing this from his own ability, his own natural talents. The word Paul, his Gentile name, his Hebrew name actually is Saul. But when he became an apostle, he took on the name Paul, which actually means small or humble. Was he a small guy? Most likely. He probably wasn't a tall guy with strong physique. In fact, we see this said about him in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. And this is the criticism of the Corinthian church of Paul. He says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong but his bodily presence is weak. He doesn't have that gladiator physique. In a time of the Roman Empire where people appreciate that gladiator physique, you go to the 
European Museum and you go inside, you just see these chiseled men, right? Those are the men historically are worshipped by the Greeks. Paul didn't have that. He wasn't a tall, strong, muscular man who intimidated others with his bodily presence. He wasn't like that. Nor was he a great oratorical speaker. He didn't have great oratorical skills. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, we see this described by Paul again. His speech was of no account. That means that when he spoke, people just thought that he was boring and that he was not entertaining that, or that he did not uh, speak in a way that was eloquent and that drew their attention. He just simply didn't have it. Wasn't a tall guy, wasn't a strong, muscular guy, as according to what they would worship in the day of Roman culture. Wasn't one who had great oratorical skills, which is actually what they also worship in that culture. They appreciate a man who could speak really, really well. That was the Greco-Roman culture, and Paul did not have that either. But what Paul had was that he was passionate. He was zealous for the work of the Lord. This was seen in the very beginning, even before he was saved. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul described himself as one who was doing this, and he said, I was advancing in Judaism Beyond many of my own age, among my people, extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. He was pushing. He was always pushing forward. He's always driving forward to what he thinks ought to be done. Now, he thought he was serving God, but he wasn't because he was persecuting the church of God. He was doing it beyond all his fathers and companions when what they were doing. He was zealous. That kind of zealousness carried over to his life after he was saved. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 to 14, we see how he used the same zealousness to proclaim Christ in his life. He said, not only, or not that, I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Man is always pressing on. Man is also pushing forward. He's always considering what to do next. He's zealous. Example of his zealousness is seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, 28. He said, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was drift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold exposure, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me, on my anxiety for all the churches. I mean, he's always pushing forward. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, he said, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. The man didn't have natural talents, but he was one that worked hard, for sure. And so God mightily used him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, Paul talked about his experience being used by God. He said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and my trembling and my speech and my message were not impossible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's who Paul was. Not a man of much natural talent, but certainly a man who was mightily used by God because the Holy Spirit was at work in Paul's life. 
In that very sense, he was a spiritual father to many, including this man Timothy here, which we read about in verse 2. He says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So who is Timothy then? Timothy is described first. We read about him in Acts chapter 16, verse 1 through 3. He was a resident of Lystra, of Derby. And Paul actually came and established churches there. But in the second missionary journey, he found Timothy and began to take him along his missionary journeys. We see this, uh, this description here in Acts chapter 16, verse 1 through 3. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and the disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. It was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, so he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were, with, uh, who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So what happens is that Timothy was in Lystra and Derby, and Paul said, you know what, come alongside with me. And he was a young man, probably in his early 20s at the moment, and people spoke very, very well of this man. And Paul actually did speak very, very well of this man as well. In uh, Philippians, we see Paul saying to all the Philippian church that we have no one like him. He also praised Timothy in 1 Corinthians as well. Timothy was a great guy. He was a guy who was faithful, the guy who loved the Lord, the guy who would put down everything and follow Paul and follow Jesus. However, one thing he lacked was that he was timid. He was a timid man. He, he was always afraid. And he, he did not have what Apostle Paul had in that sense. Where Apostle Paul was willing to dive into ministry, willing to face the opposition, willing to just see what God will do, Timothy was kind of the opposite. He, he didn't have that. He, he's always considering what people are saying about him. He's always considering the situation, and he's always doubting himself. So Paul, throughout his letters, in fact, in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he's always encouraged Timothy to not be afraid. Be the pastor God calls you to be. Stand firm in the faith. Continue in the work. Continue in the pattern of life which I have lived. Do so. Do not be afraid. Set yourself as an example. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, faith, and purity. See, Timothy was young. He was probably at this moment when the, part, uh, when the writing of 1 Timothy is happening, 35 years old. He's just a young pastor. Timothy, do not be afraid, Paul says. Do not be afraid. There are others who might look down on you because of your youth, but set an example. Teach confidently because you know this is what God is calling you to teach. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says again, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Do not be fearful, Timothy, but do what God's called you to do. See, Paul is always pushing Timothy. Timothy probably doesn't want to get pushed because he's the one who is afraid all the time. He says, you know what? I'd rather take a backseat road. God, you know, Paul, if you don't want me to be there, I won't be there. Just whatever you... Want me to do? Paul says, no, I want you to go. Go. Go do this. Go do that. We see this all throughout the scripture. In Paul's second missionary journey, when Paul was kicked out of Berea because of the riot, he left Timothy there. He said, Timothy, I need you to do this. You're important. Stay. Continue the work. We see this in Acts chapter 17, verse 13 to 14. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and staring up the crowds. And the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Paul's asking Timothy to stay. There's a riot there. It's dangerous there, but stay for the work of the ministry. Stay for the work among the brothers who got saved in that second missionary journey. In the third missionary journey, we saw this in the first Corinthian letter. 
Paul sent Timothy to Corinth, and Corinth is not an easy church to be in. It's a difficult church. It's a problematic church. But Paul was not afraid to send Timothy. Timothy, you need to be strong. You need to be courageous. Go do this work. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. I'm going to send Timothy to you. He's going to do this work. Of course, Timothy probably didn't want to go. He wasn't really prepared to go, but Paul says, you got to go. I'm going to train you. you know, you're going to do it. And Paul's th- fourth missionary journey, that is missionary journey to Rome, in which he's in prison, now he's in prison, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 22 to 23, Paul said, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as how or see how it will go with me. Paul's going to send Timothy to Philippi in a time where Paul is in Roman imprisonment. Again, trusting Timothy for the work of ministry, not letting Timothy just slide into the background and say, you know what, I don't want to do the work. The other people can do the work better than I do. No. Paul says, no, you're the man. You're the man. You're going to do it. I'm going to train you. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to commend you. Not to be fearful, but trust in God who is at work in you. So we come to 1 Timothy, and we realize that Paul is charging Timothy again, but the letter of 1 Timothy actually isn't written in any of the setting in the book of Acts. What happens is in the book of Acts is that Paul has written, or actually Paul has lived his life in the sense that Luke has written, all the way to Paul's fourth missionary journey. In Paul's fourth missionary journey, we see Paul was in prison. In that fourth mission journey, we see in Acts chapter 28, verse 30 to 31, that he actually was able to preach the gospel while he was in Rome. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him and proclaimed the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. It was a journey to Rome, but he wasn't imprisoned in the sense that he couldn't preach the gospel. He did. In fact, he told the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2, verse 24, that he expects to get out of this prison. He said this, I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself will come also to you. So Paul is fourth missionary journey. He's entrapped in Rome, but he wasn't expecting to stay there for long because he knows that as his particular case has been resolved by Caesar, he will get out of prison. He will again continue his ministry. Of course, all that wasn't recorded in the book of Acts. We just have the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy to get a sense of what happened later on, but we don't really know the details of what happened after Paul, after Paul left prison. We do know this, which is that Paul, after he left prison in Rome, he came to Ephesus alongside Timothy. And we see this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, in which he says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. So Paul left the Roman imprisonment. And with Timothy, he's now a free man. He's going to be free for a little while before he's going to be captured again. And that second Roman imprisonment is going to result in his death. But his first Roman imprisonment, he was able to get out. He got out, went to Ephesus with Timothy, and he himself traveled to Macedonia and left Timothy there to continue the work, namely to urge certain person not to teach different doctrines, to charge them to command them to not to teach doctrines other than the doctrines which Paul had taught, what Timothy had taught, to get rid of false teachers, to command them to be quiet. Paul actually warned about this in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 to 30, while he was in his third missionary journey, saying that false teachers will come to Ephesus, 
While I was meeting with the elders of Ephesus, he said these words, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. There are going to be false teachers who are going to come to this church. And it actually came out to be true. Now, years later, false teachers are here. And Timothy and Paul are dealing with this. And Paul is saying to Timothy, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. You are my true child. You are to imitate me. You are to continue my work. The word child is the word technon, which literally means that you are carrying the characteristic of your father, of your mother. There's another word for child, which is the word huios, which is the word demonstrating child, but at the same time, a demonstration of you inheriting from your father, your mother, in a sense of getting a money inheritance. This is not that word. This word technon, which is the word demonstrating that you're inheriting certain character traits. The character traits that you have blue eyes, you're going to get blue eyes. You have black hair, you're going to get black hair. You have adopted certain personality traits from your parent. You're characterized by what your parents are. That's what the word technon means. You are inheriting character traits from your father. And so Timothy is not a biological son to Paul, but Timothy is inheriting character traits from Paul himself. Paul's teaching him, saying, be strong, be strong. Second Timothy is going to see, we're going to see three characteristics that Paul is encouraging Timothy to have. Be strong as a soldier, be strong as an athlete, be strong as a farmer. Stay committed as a soldier. Stay patient as a farmer. Stay enduring as an athlete. Do all these things in imitation of what I have done. See, the question is, do you have such relationship with another person in the body of Christ? This is what Paul is having with Timothy. And by his example, we ought to think that we need to have such relationship here in the body of Christ as well. You see, sometimes we come to church and all that we care about is just ourselves. We come to church and we think that this is just a checklist between us and God. At least I made it to church. Great, you made it to church. That's wonderful. But what about others? What about being with others in the family of God? What about encouraging one another? What about speaking to the other person's life? I think about a good friend of mine. He was a pastor, and he actually came from a gang background. And once he came out of the gang background, he actually said he was going to Francis Chan's church up in Simming Valley. He was talking to Francis Chan. He was saying, I experience more love in a gang than I do in a church. So what do you mean by that? Because in a gang, they actually teach you. They actually speak to you. They're not just going to kind of just watch you and just let you fail. He was part of the gang. He was a gang ever since he was like 12, 13 years old. And people actually teach him. Teach him how to stand in street corners. Teach him how to sell drugs. I mean, you know, teach him these things. They shouldn't be taught, but they do teach him. They're saying, you know, this is who you should be hanging out with. This is who you should be watching out for. This is the area you should avoid. This is the area you shouldn't go. This is the area that you should go. But then he comes to church and says, nobody... Nobody does that to me anymore. Nobody does that to me regarding Christianity. I'm just making my mistakes all along. People just watch me fail. They say, yeah, you know what? You, you, know, you should have known better. See, we just watch other people fail at times. We just say, you know what? We, we don't want to fail anyone. We don't want to speak in such a way that we'll risk our, I don't know what it is, just our, uh, our perception of others, of us. We don't want other people to be mad at us. So we don't speak these words. But if you truly care about another person and you really want the person to do well in life, if you 
see what other person is doing that is wrong, you would speak to another person. You would speak to that person. This is how I would do with my children, right? I'm not so afraid that my child is going to be mad at me. I mean, he might be or she might be mad at me for a little bit, but at the end of it all, I know that what I've said will bear fruit in the person's heart. This is how our relationship within the body of Christ ought to be. We're not to watch one another and just, yeah, you know what, that's, that's too bad for another person. We ought to go to the other person and say, because you're part of my family, the family of God, that is, I get to speak these words into your life. I get to guide you. Amen. I got to teach you. I'm not so worried about offending you because I lived a long time as a Christian. I, get, I have a few things I could show you. Okay, I experienced a lot. We're exhorting each one of you, encourage you, and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. I'm a father to you. I, I charge you like how a father charges you. And before that, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul said, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. It's a relationship that is of family nature, which Paul has with the body of Christ. He's envisioning that himself as he's interacting with the body of Christ. He's not distant. He's not just thinking of them as co-workers. He's not just thinking of them as another person who sits down in the end of the pew, another person who's just an acquaintance. Thinking of them as family. He's investing them as if they're family. Familia, like in the gang, but much better as you're in the church because you're actually teaching one another how to follow Jesus. So there is an attitude of investment in the body of Christ, which we ought to have, which Paul is actually having here with Timothy, encouraging Timothy in such a way of pouring his own life into Timothy, wishing and praying for Timothy to do better. This is what we ought to do with one another. Another encouragement which Paul has for us is this. We ought to encourage one another to reflect upon the blessings of God. We need to re reflect, encourage one another to reflect upon the blessings of God. We see this in verse 2. Very common greeting. Paul said, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a very common greeting from Paul. Paul will mention grace, peace, mercy in his letters, and he was to mention that these are coming from God himself. So first, Paul mentions grace. Now, grace is a blessing of God for sure because grace is what causes us to be saved here in the first place. None of us deserve it. We receive salvation by grace and grace alone. Grace is a gift. It's an undeserved gift. We do not deserve it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9, we see Paul saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. It's a gift given to you. It's not because you earned it, but because God is gracious. He loves you. He gives to you. Who we are originally is that we don't deserve it. We're sinners before God. We don't deserve such gift. Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, we see David saying, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're sinners from birth. Romans chapter 10, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not even one. We're not righteous. We don't deserve it. But what God has done for us is this. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, it says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. 
This is grace. Grace is us receiving something we don't deserve. So Timothy had to be reminded of this because Timothy is the one who had received such grace from God, his own salvation. Timothy likely grew up in a mixed family. Mixed family meaning that not just mixed ethnically, which is good, which is great, but mixed spiritually because his father likely was not a believer. Throughout all the letters of Paul, we talked about Timothy having a mother who was a believer, actually 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, talked about a mother who was a believer and a grandmother who was a believer. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, we see this. Paul is reminding Timothy of a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. So he had a, father, he had a mother, he had a grandmother who are believers. But what about his father? Well, the only time his father is mentioned is Acts chapter 16, verse 3, which it says Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For we all knew that his father was a Greek. No area in Scripture ever talks about his father having faith in God. So likely what Timothy had grew up in was a mixed family. And we know mixed families are difficult for children to grow up in. The reason why is because you had to pick the faith of your mother or the faith of your father. And who knows what you're going to pick? Prayerfully, you're going to pick the faith of your mother. Well, Timothy did do that. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he was offered sacred writings, offered opportunities to learn more about God, even in childhood. We don't know what happened to his father. We know that when Paul took Timothy along with him in his second missionary journey, he didn't ask the father for permission. Perhaps the father died, or perhaps the father was just okay with it. We don't know. But Timothy was given grace from God to grow up in a mixed spiritual family and to retain the faith, and this was the grace of God. Timothy experienced the grace of God in salvation, but not only did Timothy receive the grace of God in salvation, Timothy also received the grace of God in ministry. You see, grace is the word gift. It's the word charis. It's also used in Scripture to, to demonstrate that we have received the gift of ministry. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, we see this used it says, by grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's talking about spiritual gifts. Paul later on tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So all these people, all these offices, apostleship, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and shepherds are actually pastors and teachers, are gifts of God to the church. And Timothy had one of those, which is that he's a shepherd, he's a poimenos, he's a pastor, the fourth spiritual gift, which is seen here. He's a shepherd of God. He's been given this great opportunity to serve God. This, too, is an undeserving gift of his life. So Paul wanted Timothy to be reminded of the very fact that he's been given grace of God. Grace of God in salvation, the grace of God in ministry. But not only is he given the grace of God in salvation and ministry, we also see that he's given the mercy of God. We see this in verse 2. Again, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So a mercy here actually is a word that is not found in much of Paul's greetings. In fact, if you read throughout all his letters, he will only mention two blessings, especially to the churches. Philippians chapter 1, verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Those are the two blessings of God in most of Paul's writings. But to Timothy, 
and also to Titus to the pastors, he added this word mercy. Why? Why say mercy to the pastors? Does the pastor need a lot of mercy? I think so. I think we need a whole lot of mercy from God. Yes. And of course, there's mercy in salvation. Mercy is different from grace in the sense that grace is an undeserving gift given to you. Mercy carries a different connotation. It's not separate from the grace of God because it's all talking about salvation. But the mercy of God connotates compassion. Compassion, a pardoning of something which you did that was wrong, but you received forgiveness. We see this display in David's writing in Psalm chapter 51, verse 1, where he cries out, Have mercy, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. See, David had committed this great sin against God with Bathsheba, the sin of adultery. And David now is crying to God, have mercy on me. Do not repay me for what I have done. Have mercy. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7, we see Isaiah saying, Let the wicked forsake their ways and are righteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord, for he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon so it's a pardoning of sin. It's a forgiveness of sin. It's a compassion to an individual saying, you know what, I will not give you what you deserve. So you could say that maybe grace is us receiving something we don't deserve, and mercy is us not receiving something which we do deserve. That's a good definition. So Timothy had the mercy of God because as a pastor, he's saved like anyone is. We all need the mercy of God. Even Paul needed the mercy of God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, Paul talks about the fact that he received the mercy of God in his conversion. He said, for that very reason, I would show mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who will believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, you know what? I, I, I was a sinner. I was one who persecuted God's church. I, I killed God's people. I placed them in prison but I receive mercy to demonstrate how patient God can be. So Timothy received that mercy. Paul received that mercy because as a pastor, we need to have the mercy of God due to the fact that we are saved. Woe to your church the pastor is not saved, right? You don't want anyone standing up here who does not have the Spirit of God in him. You don't want anyone sitting here or standing over here preaching to you who is not born again. You want somebody who is saved. You want somebody who claimed the mercy of God and have received the mercy of God as well. But mercy, amen. But mercy is not something that's relegated to salvation only. Mercy actually continues on after we've been saved. The reason why is because pastors sin like everyone else. We do. Not disqualifying sins, not the sin of adultery, which would disqualify a pastor and just say, you know what, you're done. Okay? But pastors do sin. For example, we could say a harsh word in a counseling session. Happens. I could do that. And I'm going to think, have mercy on me. I go ask forgiveness from the other person. Or I could be lazy in sermon prep, right? I could just, you know what? I just don't want to spend that much time and I bring a subpar sermon. You are all confused on what I'm saying, can't follow it. I need the mercy of God. Ask you for forgiveness. Wasted all of you guys' time. 50 minutes of harming people here. That's hundreds of minutes, thousands of minutes. I wasted all of your times. I need the mercy of God. Or pastors can become prideful momentarily. Someone comes to you and say, oh, you did a great job in this and that. And the pastor started feeling really good about himself instead of giving glory to God in his heart. Pastor need mercy of God. 
And this is our real sins that pastors go through that constantly we have to ask God for mercy for because we want to be pure in heart in our service to the Lord. So Timothy is reminded by Paul that you have grace and you have mercy. You need grace and mercy in your life. Not just the one who is saved by God, but one who is conducting ministry on behalf of the Lord. But then if you have mercy and grace, you will also have the third blessing here, which is peace. Verse 2, it says, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have grace and mercy, then you will know that God is at work in your life. He's having everything in control. And therefore, you will have peace. Now, the word peace here, oftentimes scripture is used to denote a state of relationship. For example, our relationship with God. We are peace with God because of Christ, right? It's what Irene is saying that we have peace. Peace. We once were enemies of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. We're enemies, but then we're reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now we're reconciled. We shall be saved through His life. We've been reconciled with God. We were once enemies, but now we have peace with God. This, this actually is the very word used by the angels in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, where the angels are crying out, glory to God in the highest. And this is the night when Christ was born. And on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased right? Peace, peace from God to us, with God, with us, as a result of what Christ has done. This is peace. It's a state of relationship between us and God. But peace is not just a description of a state of relationship. Peace also is an emotion. It's used all the time in Scripture as a feeling. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 we see Paul commanding this, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. You are to have the peace of God in your heart. It's a real feeling. It's not just a state of relationship, saying, okay, I have peace with God because, of course, I've been saved, and, of course, God now looks at me as he looks at Christ Jesus, which is all true, but you actually feel this peace in your heart. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 through 7, Paul commanded this again, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's a peace which we're to have in our hearts as a blessing of God. So we are to have the blessing of salvation in the very fact that we have peace with God. We're no longer enemies of God, but there's also experiential peace, experiential peace in which we're now actually having this emotion in which we're not bothered by the things of this world. And because we know that God is in control. Pastor need this. The reason why pastor need this is because, well, we can beat ourselves up and we can receive criticism and others could try to beat us up. Not here, but certainly happens all the time in pastoral settings. Congregation rise up, and perhaps the pastor is to blame, perhaps not. Pastors become discouraged. They lose the sense of calling in their lives, and they quit. I've seen pastors quit all the time. I've been a pastor since 2013, associate pastor and now senior pastor here in our church. And throughout the period of time, I've seen so many pastors come and go. that God is with them and God is working through that difficult situation for His glory. All of a sudden, they think that they're not cut out for the work. They're never cut out for the work. It's all grace and peace, to, all grace and mercy to begin with anyways. But they lost the perspective of that. 
I think of a wonderful, wonderful story that demonstrated this and how discouragement can overtake a person in the story of Elijah. You can think about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. He had just done this great work, thinking this is what's going to turn the nation around. He's called down fire from heaven, destroyed 400 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Ezra, slaughtered them, and now these people are gone, and all the people who surround the Mark Carmel gets to see that Yahweh is a true God. Everything should turn around from here now. I should be safe. I should be, I should be uh, doing this work of ministry. Everything should be easier from now on. In fact, Jezebel should be thrown away. Ahab should be dethroned. Jezebel should be kicked out. But that didn't happen. What happened? People were still bowing down to Jezebel. Jezebel heard of what Elijah had done and sent people to kill Elijah. What happened was that Elijah was discouraged, saying, no, I've, I've done this thing. I, I, I've, I've done this great thing for you, Lord. And we can feel that way at times, do we not? We've done this great thing for God. And we think, you know what, God, you should look at this great thing I've done for you. I got baptized, I'm going to church, attending Bible studies. Things should be blessings from now on, and life actually got harder. And you're discouraged. You're saying, God, where are you? That's what Elijah was feeling like. Saying, God, where are you? He finally sat down the juniper tree after he ran so far away. And God talked to him. Say, Elijah, why are you here? God, just let me die. I'm done. I'm done. I, I, I can't do this anymore. And God said to Elijah, you just need to rest for a while. Give him food. Give him sleep. It's the grace and the mercy of God. And then he slept. Wake up again. Ate some more. Slept again. Got up. Walked to Mount Horeb. And there God showed him who God truly is. God is in control. There's a fire. There's an earthquake. There's a wind. But God was not in any of those. And after that, there was a still, small voice. And God says, look, you might see the fire. You might see the wind. You might see the earthquake. You might be afraid. You might think, you know what, God, where are you? I'm above all that. I'm working in the background to accomplish all my purposes. You just need to be faithful. See, we get in the state of mind, do we not, in which we become afraid. We become anxious over the things of this world. We think, God, where are you? And we get stuck in this position. We say, you know, God, you're not with me. If you're with me, and if, you, if, if my life is in your path, then certainly you would not allow these things to happen. We get scared. We get afraid. The only time that we can snap out of it is by another person telling us, encouraging us with the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him. See, we need to be reminded of that. Otherwise, we're just stuck in our own perception of ourselves, in our own situation, and we, we don't acknowledge what God is doing. And we need another eye looking at our lives and say, you know what, you, you need to acknowledge what God has done. God is still in control. He still sits on the throne. That means that you must be present in another person's life, to invest in another person, to speak those words to another person. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, we see these words. We're not to neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another all the more as you see the day draw near. We need this in the lives of believers in the body of Christ. Otherwise, living life isolated by yourself is hard. You might believe in the lies. You might consider the things which you're going through as the 
things which are really ruling your life, but it's not. God is still in control. He's still working in the background to lead you in ways perhaps you do not yet know and have not seen, and other people need to bring you to attention to that. This is what God is calling us to. The question I have for you and for myself is, do you have individuals in your life in which you can invest in such a way? Do you have that? See, I don't think this is done by passivity. You can't just come to church and walk out and not talk to anybody and expect this kind of relationship. If you want this kind of relationship, meaning that you want someone to minister in such a way, or if you want to minister to someone in such a way, you must be intentional. I think about the intentionality of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. He wasn't passive in the calling of disciples. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It was an intentional call to relationship in discipleship. He says, you know what, let's build this relationship on the basis of calling one another spiritually in the Lord. There's intentionality in that. And disciples understood this in John chapter 1, verse 37. We see that they were intentional in following Jesus. There was a sense of knowing that this relationship is made on the basis of our spiritual pursuit of God. You see, in this world, we may have friendship made on the basis of different kinds of things. Maybe because you work together. Maybe because you have the same ethnic background. Maybe because you live in the same area. And so you're coming together on the basis of that. But what about coming together on the basis of spiritual pursuit. It is intentional. It will not happen unless you are actually intentional about it. There's several ways which we as a church do that here. We have small groups which were intentional. We say, you know what? Let's come together as a small group and encourage one another in the Lord. And perhaps internationally, intentionality looks like that you will ask the person out for coffee and say, hey, let's go get coffee together. Let's talk about the Lord together. Let's do a Bible study together. Or perhaps later on, we have communion, we have the second portion of communion, and we're actually going to pray with each other. And you're feeling awkward, and you say, you know what, I'm by myself, I don't want to go to this person, this person's alone. You're going to go to the person and say, you know what, can I pray with you? Can I thank God with you? I know that you're a believer. I'm going to thank Jesus alongside with you for the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. There's intentionality there. There's a stepping out in faith. That's required for us in order for us to have this kind of relationship in Christ. And this kind of relationship is the most precious relationship which we could have. To end with this, I, I think about Paul and his relationship with Timothy. See, we can have relationships built on all kinds of reasons. Because we have family, biological families, or because we are working together as coworkers, or perhaps we just kind of have the same ethnic background, or whatever it is. But you know, when Paul, when he was about to die, who he wanted to see? He had a sister, right, in Book of Acts. Didn't talk about her very much. But what he wanted to see was this person, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Right before Paul dies, he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. This is the nature of our spiritual relationship. No relationship will be as firm, as secure, as wonderful as a relationship that's based on spiritual nature. Because you know that the person cares about you, not because what you got to offer, but because your common loyalty in Christ. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, we see these words. 
a man of many companions may come to ruin. But, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I pray that you and I may find such friend in the body of Christ here in the First Baptist Church Hollywood, that you will pursue Christ fully with his person, knowing that together you are one. You are together as companions, as partners, as those who are building friendships in Christ because of your common loyalty to Jesus. This is a friendship that lasts. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we are we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful that we get to hear your word, that we get to listen to what you have to teach us. And we know, Lord, that this is a challenge for many of us because we do tend to isolate ourselves in a sense that we think that perhaps we are the only people that we need to have and we don't cherish relationships. Perhaps we don't think we need relationships or perhaps we're afraid of relationships. But we pray that we would not be those who live isolated because we all need those in the body of Christ who will encourage us, who will call us out, uh, call us out spiritually. But we have such relationships in the body of Christ, Lord, for your glory. May we grow tremendously as a result of it. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.